Jean-Luc Godard, arguably the worst filmmaker in the history of cinema, while also being one of the greatest directors the medium has ever seen. The paradox is that Godard is not a filmmaker. He has never made films. He has unmade them. And in so doing, he gave cinema a new form and new content with new direction. Unlike, say, Griffith, Eisenstein, Murnau or Wells, who were devoted to constructing stories, Godard focused on how stories are constructed. Plot and human behaviour did not interest him anywhere near as much as film's vocabulary and syntax. Instead of building dramatic tension, he broke film grammar. He took the most basic element of cinema, the wide shot, close-up or tracking shot, and shattered its ability to function. By inventing the jump cut, he dissected what film records, time and space. And then, having taken apart time and space, he cut again this time splitting the sand from the image, so you neither heard what you were seeing nor saw what you were hearing. In that way, Godard exposed a film's construction, unmade cinema and remade the medium. Here he is in October 1980 being interviewed by Dick Cavett on PBS. To me there is no real difference between uh, image and and sound. They are just tools and uh, sometimes, I mean... uh, as I say, even if it looks a paradox, you, you, have to lis- you have to listen to the image and to, to look at the sound, if I may say so. Godard began as a film critic at Cahiers de Cinema in the 1950s. But unlike his contemporaries, Truffaut, Chabrol, René, Rivette or Romer, once he graduated to directing, he maintained his criticism. Each time he directed a film, he reviewed cinema. He critiqued film by directing film. And he embedded those critiques so deeply that the plots took second place. That is to say, Godard was never a storyteller, but rather a grammarian. Over a seven-year period, when he burst onto the scene with Breathless in 1960, and then right through to 1967 with Weekend, he wrote and directed 15 feature films. No director before or since has come close to such a prolific, analytic and mesmeric output. Throughout that riotous canon, he picked up, examined, toyed with, and then tossed out, almost every grammatical construction assumed crucial to film storytelling. Continuity editing, the 180-degree rule, synchronised sound, the fourth wall, intertitles, diegetic music, off-screen space, mixing genres. You name it, Godard took what was familiar and reinvented it as new. He exposed all of cinema as an illusion, a pretense, a distraction, to pull our attention away from what creates the construct. According to Godard, the construct is a veil, concealing the twin ideologies of capitalism and imperialism. And he deconstructed cinema in order to pull back the veil and show how capitalism and imperialism puppetize culture, to make sure that history and language are manipulated to sustain them. Cinema is just a tool within that manipulation. Which is why, in 1963, Godard decided to make a movie about making a movie. They tell me that you wrote that wonderful, successful motion picture, Toto against Hercules. Il dit que c'est vous qui a écrit Toto contre Hercules. Oui. Ça marche très bien à New York. Comme ça. Oh, you don't have to be modest with me. I don't believe in modesty. I believe in pride. I believe in the pride of making good films. 
Lumetri is adapted from the novel Il Disprezzo by Italian author Alberto Moravia, in which Riccardo Maltini, a conceited screenwriter, rents out his mediocre talent to Batista, a brash producer. Riccardo does this because he believes it is the only way he can maintain the lifestyle to which his beautiful young wife Emilia has grown accustomed. In other words, he senses that Emilia no longer loves him, but loves his money. By contrast, Batista seems to have artistic aspirations because he has engaged a legendary German director, suitably named Rheingold, to direct a new version of Homer's Odyssey. However, Ricardo senses that Batista is less interested in procuring a first-rate adaptation of the ancient epic and more interested in seducing Emilia. For her part, Emilia is disturbed that Ricardo does not object to Batista's advances, which makes Emilia suspect that Ricardo has offered her to Batista to advance his career. Despite Godard's iconoclasm, he was quite faithful to Moravia's book, the most obvious changes being the characters' names. In the film, Ricardo becomes Paul and is played by Michel Piccoli, while Emilia becomes Camille and is played by Brigitte Bardot, with Batista changed to Jeremy Prokosch, played by Jack Palance. Rounding out the small cast as Rheingold, the German director from the silent era, was real-life German director Fritz Lang, who played Fritz Lang. Would you like to rewrite it, Jerry? You've cheated me, Fritz. That's not what is in that script. It is! Il Disprezzo was published in 1954, and perhaps not coincidentally, the betrayal and manipulation Moravia wrote about was on display just two years earlier in the Oscar-winning Hollywood production The Bad and the Beautiful. Directed by Vincente Minnelli, it focuses on a ruthless producer, Jonathan Shields, who hires struggling screenwriter James Bartlow to pen his next film. But James is distracted by his emotionally demanding wife Rosemary, and in order to keep James focused on the typewriter, Shields introduces Rosemary to matinee idol Victor Roberti, and their ensuing affair ends in tragedy out that way. Well, you were rude. I don't care how you feel about Jonathan Shields. If you are a gentleman, there is no justification for boorishness. You asked me how my work was going. What was I supposed to say? Great? Incidentally, who was that overgrown bullfighter you danced with all night? You mean Victor Rivera? Gaucho? Well, I only danced with him twice. An hour each time. My, you do get nasty when you're jealous. Il Disprezzo translates literally as The Disdain, yet, for some reason, when published in English, it went by the enigmatic title of A Ghost at Noon. But thankfully, Godard's title is more faithful. Le mépris means contempt, and that tone seeps into every word uttered, every gesture made, in every frame, in every scene. And the source of that contempt is the producer Prokosch, who is presented as a corrupting Philistine interested in only one thing. Money. In Godard's film, money is synonymous with power, and power manifests itself in many ways, not least of which is through sex. In an early scene, Prokosch gets a secretary to bend over so that he can use her backside as a desk to write a check. Those four elements of money, power, sex and movies merged again some three decades later 
in Paul Thomas Anderson's sprawling drama, Boogie Nights. Wait a minute. You come into my house, my party, to tell me about the future. That the future is tape, videotape, and not film. It is amateurs and not professionals. I'm a filmmaker. That's why I will never make a movie on videotape. I'll tell you something else. I will never, ever loan out any of the Wait, 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 wait. I'm not a complicated man. I like cinema. In particular, I like to see people fucking on film. But I don't want to win an Oscar and I don't want to reinvent a wheel. I like simple places like butter in my ass, lollipops in my mouth. That's just me. That's just something that I enjoy. Call me crazy, call me a pervert. But there's one little thing that I want to do in this life. And that is I want to make a dollar and a cent in this business. Anderson's allusion to Goddard's picture becomes clearer when we consider the casting of Camille. For four of Goddard's previous five pictures, he had cast his wife Anna Karina in the female lead, but none of them had been commercially successful. Goddard knew that his financier, the legendary Italian producer Carlo Ponti, was growing impatient with films that may have broken grammatical rules, but failed to break out of the box office. For Le Mépris, Ponti and his American partner, Joseph E. Levine, insisted on casting Brigitte Bardot. Bardot was the biggest film star to come out of Europe since Greta Garbo in the 1920s. But where Garbo's persona had been elusive and enigmatic, Bardot's fame was built on exposure. Her breakthrough had come in 1956, when, in the opening moments of And God Created Woman, she was seen sunbathing in the nude, and thereafter, the mere sight of her bare skin promised box office bonanzas. Which meant that Ponty and Levine expected Godard to follow suit. True to his form, Godard did so in a way that was anything but expected. Instead, he drew attention not to Bardot's nudity, but to the cinema's objectification of the female form. Camille lies in bed with her husband Paul and asks for his reassurance about her appearance. Does he like her feet, ankles, knees, thighs? So instead of having the audience fawn over Bardo's body, Godard was discussing the issue of body image decades before the phrase was even invented. Then, later on, Godard has Bardot roll about naked on a white rug. This time, she appears to be alone. But she is not, because Godard has a return our look, gazing straight into the lens and right back at us. Which returns us to Boogie Nights. Jack Horner may have rejected Floyd Gondoly's declaration that video is the future of the porn industry, but nevertheless, he succumbs to the new format and abandons his commitment to scripted plotting by engaging random strangers to enter into his limousine where he tapes them having sex with Roller Girl. Hi, Jack Corner here, uh, in the back of this beautiful limousine in the back seat, riding along west on Sherman Way, and beside me is beautiful, talented, gorgeous young actress from adult cinema, Roller Girl. Hi, hello, howdy. Are you ready to get on with this experiment? Ready, ready like Freddy. <laughs> Quite often the plot of the film within a film is a trivial thing, a flimsy premise the writers do not bother fleshing out. But in Les Mépuis, the story is no less than Homer's monumental epic, The Odyssey. But where Ulysses and Penelope remained devoted to one another, here it is used to show the marital discord between Paul and Camille. 
but it also mocks the aspirations of the filmmakers who think they can match Homer's insight into human behaviour. Such pretension is on display in Robert Alban's The Player, where pompous English director Tom Oakley pitches Habeas Corpus, a plot so outlandish only the most vainglorious filmmaker could fail to see their pretense. We open outside the largest penitentiary in California. It's night. It's raining. A limousine comes in through the front gate, past a tight knot of demonstrators holding a candlelight vigil. The candles under the umbrellas make them glow like Japanese lanterns. That's nice. I haven't seen that before. That's good. A lone demonstrator, a black woman, steps in front of the limousine. The lights illuminate her like a spirit. Her eyes fix upon those of the sole passenger. The moment is devastating between them. He's the DA. She's the mother of the person that's being executed. Making a movie about making a movie is something several celebrated auteurs have done. In Eight and a Half, Fellini used it as a way of exploring personal responsibility, while Truffaut made Day for Night to express his love for the cinema. But for Godard, it was an opportunity to depict film as a gladiatorial arena where art was in constant battle with commerce, Europe in combat with Hollywood, classicism in opposition to modernism, Bardot's bare skin with the white marble of the ancient statues. Godard had begun his career venerating American cinema, but by the time he made Le Prix, he sensed cinema in general, and Hollywood in particular, were in crisis. Television had ripped audiences away from theatres, and financiers responded by cutting back on production and only investing in bigger and bigger spectacles. Land of the Pharaohs, The Ten Commandments, Alexander the Great, The Vikings, Ben-Hur, El Cid, Cleopatra. Seeing these bloated vacuous productions, Godard's veneration turned to despair, and then contempt. In the same year that Le Mépris was released, Cleopatra ran so far over budget that 20th Century Fox faced bankruptcy. Adjusted to inflation, the studio spent over $340 million on its production and marketing. With costs only increasing, profits prove only more elusive, and consequently, everything else becomes expendable. Art, culture, history, marriage, relationships, storytelling. Even your stars. Profit must be secured no matter what the price. Power must be maintained. The construct must prevail. Les Grossman. We don't get money yet. Price now 100 million. You pay now or tomorrow Simple Jack die. Great. Uh, let me get this down. 100 million. Oh, wait. I got a better idea. Instead of 100 million, how about I send you a hobo's dick cheese? Then you kill him. Do your thing. Skin the fucking bastard. Go to town, man. Go to town. No. In the meantime, and as usual, go fuck yourself. No, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, are you insane? I think I could have done that. No, better. I thought it was good. They're gonna kill him. And we'll weep for him in the press. <laughs>